Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. This time, please welcome Priyanka Kumar. Thanks so much for coming here. Um, I am going to launch right away into the presentation and then do a brief reading and bring uh, Jim up on stage. Um, it's very exciting to have Jim here today because he actually flew in yesterday f uh, from London and Prague to be here. So I'm very honored to have him here. Um, so one of the protagonists of this novel, this novel is the first in a trilogy that deals with how our relationship with the outdoors in the American West has changed in the last 50 years. And um, this one focuses on birding uh, and is set here in Southern California. So one of the protagonists of the novel, JK, is a 20-something graduate student. And um, he is doing a big year to find the most number of bird species in LA County one year and the novel is the story of how his life begin begins to unravel as he becomes obsessed with his big year. Uh, so when I was a graduate student um, at USC um, I took a still photography class and one book that was required reading for this class was The Little Prince. Um, how many of you have read the book? Okay, great. <laughs> now, I went to the university bookstore and got a copy of the book and I read it and I couldn't figure out what The Little Prince had to do with still photography. And my first clue to this puzzle came a few years later when I was teaching uh, filmmaking at UC Santa Cruz. And one December afternoon, I went to Elkhorn Slough, which is between Santa Cruz and Monterey. And as you can see, it's not the prettiest place on the planet. But what made it interesting is that there were two volunteers armed with battered copies of the National Geographic Guide to Birds. And they gave us a tour, a bird tour of the area. And I remember being enthralled by this um, long-billed curlew. It was around noon and the bird was eating its lunch. And I, I lingered so long that I actually got chased away by a crab. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't realize in that moment that the way I looked at the world was about to change. Um, a few days later, I was in doing my usual thing downtown Santa Cruz uh, on my way to a restaurant. And just as I was walking out of the parking lot, I saw a bare tree just like this one with some birds silhouetted. And you know, could barely make, make out a little bit of red on their heads. And, you know, to my surprise, I found this exciting. I, I wanted to know what these birds were. And, you know, I found out they were the common house finches, the lowly house finches in the birding world. And it was going to be a while before I saw their more distinguished cousins, the Lawrence's goldfinches. By the way, do I have birders in the audience? It's always nice to know. Great. Um, so around this time, I'd finished my teaching stint at UC Santa Cruz and moved back to Southern California. And I'm sure all of you know the Huntington Library Art Collections and Botanical Gardens. And I'd been here when I was a student at SC. But I mainly remember the art collections and, you know, maybe some of the gardens stepping out of the way of a lizard or two. But this way, this time when I went back, um, things felt different. Even a walk um, in the area to nearby Lacey Park might yield red-crowned parrots. And uh, in the Huntington, before, whereas 
I might have just walked by a palm tree. I noticed that it was sheltering a morning dove. And, uh, you know, before, whereas I may have noticed the color on this flowering aloe, I actually heard a mockingbird whistling from the plant. So, um, I wasn't sure how I had missed all of this stuff before, um, but I had. And uh, some of you might know of Maxwell Perkins, maybe a lot of you know of Maxwell Perkins, the legendary editor of uh, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Marjorie Kinnan Rollins. I'd like to read this quote out from him. Anybody can find out if he or she is a writer. If he were a writer, when he tried to write of some particular day, he would find in the effort that he could recall exactly how the light fell and how the temperature felt and all the quality of it. Most people cannot do it. If they can do it, they may never be successful in a pecuniary sense, but that ability is at the bottom of writing, I'm sure. So I find it really interesting that Perkins talks about a writer's ability to be able to recall exactly how the light fell and how the temperature felt and all the quality of it, because I think it's those acute powers of observation that I admire in my favorite authors. So um, being a part of the birding world, I feel certainly heightened th those powers of observation in me. And after being immersed in this world for a while, I began to see birds through the eyes of birders. Uh, one of the things that I realized is that in this world, people can equate the love of birds with the love of listing. And those of you who are birders will know what I'm talking about. And so this guy, JK, this graduate student, gets obsessed with his big year list. He has to find the most number of bird species in LA County in one year, which is going to be a 350 something species. And so I began to look at birds through the eyes of this character, JK, who came to me. And how does he feel when he sees a common hummingbird? How does he feel when he is really chasing an elusive hummingbird and eventually finds it in the parking lot of a community college? And then I began to look at uh, plants through the eyes of another character, Karen, who's the hospitality chair of the fictional Alpina Birding Society in the novel, which is the oldest birding society in the country, and how she really cares about protecting the last remaining wild space in Alpina, protecting its plants, and how devastated she is when she realizes that the other members of the society don't really care. Now, humans have been interested in birds for a very long time. They show up in our myths, our religion, um, our philosophy, our literature. In the Purgatorio, Dante is startled awake from his slumbers by an eagle. And I was in Florence this summer where I took uh, a series of photographs called Birds in Art. And I was... Um, I found it fascinating that in this most significant tribute to Dante in his hometown of Florence, he is represented with a bird, with an eagle, which soars higher than all other birds. In Assisi, I found myself in the basement of the Cathedral of St. Rufino, where I found this Roman-era mural. This is St. John's bird, um, apparently a pet of Apostle John. It was given to him as a gift, and he liked to play with it in his free time. Among the many, many Madonna and child paintings I saw in Florence, uh, for me it was uh, particularly thrilling to find a rare painting in which this child is depicted holding a bird. Now, the goldfinch, of course, is a Christian symbol, and this little boy is only a year and a half old when this portrait is painted, but he is the son of a Duke of Florence, and he has already been earmarked for a career in the church, which is why he's shown holding a goldfinch. Uh, it seems like birds are with us, whether we know it or not, from birth to death. Um, I uh, took a walk in the Romantic Graves Gallery in Santa Croce and found that herons and egrets were particularly popular motifs on graves. Now, there's a masterpiece of bird sculptures at the Bargello National Museum in Florence. Um, this, is, uh, this museum is at the site of a former prison facility. This uh, building was a prison or police headquarters for about 300 years. And um, this 
peacock was so lifelike that it felt like it was still strutting through the walls of the prison on uh, lonely afternoons. Um, I was really impressed by this um, set of bird sculptures and went back three times to study them. And what was particularly interesting is that they were sculpting very specific birds. The marsh harrier here, uh, long-eared owl, eagle owl, and the royal eagle. This turkey supposedly has its feathers fluffed up in anger. Turkeys were introduced uh, actually from America to Italy in the 15th century. So coming back to the novel, J.K., this graduate student, finds uh, a lot of comfort in nature, particularly when he's frustrated by the people in his life or he feels that the people in his life are not there for him. He turns to nature um, and especially to wild places like these and he goes deeper into them and he can find life anywhere. He'll find life between rocks. For him, a lone flower might uh, light up an otherwise gloomy trail. But for the most part, he is not really looking at flowers. He mainly looks past the flowers and he will drive as, as long as he needs to uh, do whatever it takes to find that one elusive camouflaged bird. That's what he's after. And now, Karen, on the other hand, has a very different experience. For her, the birds sometimes lead her back to the plants. If you look at the bottom corner of that photograph, you'll see a blurry picture of a plant. And anybody know what that is? Just a mini quiz. Anyway, it's not a fair quiz. Maybe I have a better photograph right here. Hmm? Uh, yeah, close. It's the fiddle necks. Yeah and uh, a nicely shaped plant in the Carrizo Plain, Central Valley, where JK spends a lot of time birding. Um, and so Karen never fails to be moved by the smaller wildlife that's eking out an existence in uh, pretty harsh conditions. And she finds that if she looks close enough, the landscape begins to tell her its story. So what from a distance might seem to be a dead landscape, when she looks closer, actually is teeming with life. And she can't see as many birds as her grandmother did in the old days. And she has to go farther to see them. But again, um, you know, a tree snag becomes more meaningful to her because it is uh, being a Motel 6 for these cormorants for the night. So the Salton Sea is actually on the Pacific Flyway, which is a very important migratory route for birds. And um, she finds that even a great blue heron um, nest, is a, this uh, telephone pole is, is doing double duty as a, as a nest. And so what happens is she begins to appreciate the interrelationships between birds and their habitat. And uh, she wonders and is surprised and is hurt when she finds that other birders are not necessarily doing the same thing. I like this photo because it seems like the scrub jay is approving of a native species planting program here. So. Um, I'm a big fan of Japanese gardens. For me, time tends to slow down when I'm in a Japanese garden, and I'd like to read this quote for you from the Book of Tea. But when we consider how small, after all, the cup of human enjoyment is, how soon overflowed with tears, how easily drained to the dregs in our quenchless thirst for infinity, we shall not blame ourselves for making so much of the teacup. And I like this quote because I think it could be applied to birding. <laughs> Um, I stumbled into a Japanese garden in LA of all places a few years ago and found myself spending time with this uh, green heron who is really a master of patience, especially when it's looking for a fish. It can just stand there crouched for hours. And so what happens is you start 
finding birds in unexpected places, even when you're traveling. I was crossing a bridge here to go to the Einstein Museum in Bern, Switzerland, and just that morning I'd been to the Einstein house and I had found that, uh, I had learned that he really enjoyed this walk that he took daily from, he, he, he went right under this bridge, um, sorry, under this gate, uh, and he really enjoyed this walk that he took from his house to his patent office and he said to one of his friends the reason he enjoyed this walk so much was that it was uncommonly diversified and a lot of creative thinking got done on the way. And I find that um, some of our best thinking gets done in uh, in moments when we're not self-conscious. And I, uh, for me, I think that's when I'm birding. Now what happens is you become a very slow hiker if you start birding because you are too busy looking at birds and you start seeking them out in uh, bird refuges. Um, in New Mexico, where I live right now, we're uh, very lucky because we have the Bosque del Apache, which is an amazing wildlife refuge where you can stumble upon a roadrunner, or you can see thousands upon thousands of snow geese and sandhill cranes in one day. And that's certainly a beautiful way to spend a day. Around this time, sorry, around this time I I'd been birding for a while, and I, I came back to that book that I, I spoke about, The Little Prince. And I'd like to read this passage for you. In this passage, the fox is explaining to the little prince the rights of friendship. And the fox says, it would have been better to come back at the same hour. If, for example, you come at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, then at 3 o'clock I shall begin to be happy. One must observe the proper rites. Well, this little white-breasted nuthatch knew how to observe the proper rites. It would show up, uh, this is the first place we'd rented in Santa Fe, and there was this grandmotherly apricot tree with all these creases and crevices, and the nuthatch would show up at 11 every morning to check out uh, the little creases, and I, this would be just when my writing was warming up, and I would take a moment to stop and watch the bird. Another uh, visitor, or I should say a friend, uh, came to visit the same apricot tree fairly regularly. So, um, you know, as much as I enjoy going to wildlife refuges, some of my best experiences birding have been right in my own backyard. And I think once you start birding in your backyard, um, you start thinking about all kinds of things, about plants that will encourage birds to come. You start thinking about compost piles that'll feed those plants. Uh, you start thinking about native plants that'll conserve water. And you want to be as welcoming as you can to wildlife. Of course, you can go too far in that direction, and then you end up with this. And uh, this is indeed a photograph of a bobcat that showed up in our backyard uh, two years ago. And and it's funny I'm talking about this right now because just three days ago I was sitting in my living room and happened to look out and there he was strolling away as if he owned the place. So, and practically all but walked into my, my uh, porch. So, <laughs> but what a beautiful, exquisite creature. And so um, in Santa Fe we have the Randall Davy Audubon Center which I think of as our common backyard and often find myself there on a weekend morning uh, looking at uh, plants and flowers and of course when the seasons change as they have done recently the the flowers are gone but I can always rely on uh, the resident birds such as the spotted towhee and this junco, which is you know a fairly common bird, but it brightened up this winter landscape for me uh, the way only an old friend can. So that's it for my presentation. Nice. I'm going to read a quick passage from my book. I told Jim I was going to jump right into the conversation, but being the being the poet that he is, he said, "No, you have to read something." So, so that's exactly what I'll do. I'll read a couple of pages. And in this, um, J.K. is taking a girl that he's met fairly recently, and they've, they've had a connection, and he's taking her on a trip. 
and she doesn't know exactly where they're going. So, the Mojave Desert was one of JK's favorite trips, but the big year had prevented him from going there. He drove Luna into the desert just as the sun was being swallowed by the horizon, which was perfect, because he had come equipped with his black light. Luna looked confused, but his gleaming eyes told her to wait for an explanation. JK walked her into the thick of the desert and shined the light in the likeliest places. The trick worked. In the dark, the scorpions glowed fluorescent green in its glare. Look how fast they go, he cried. It was fun to see them scurry about. They hear the sound of our shoes and they want to get out of here. They could get squished like any other bug. You're crazy, she said good-naturedly. They drove to Clark Mountain in the black of the night. Armed with heavy-duty flashlights, they hiked along the dirt road and eventually up the steep incline that rose out of the desert like a phantom. They got cut up pretty badly getting there because of the thorns, but Luna kept up the best she could as some part of her wanted to please JK. Luna wasn't a bad hiker, but JK's brisk pace tired her. She stopped and leaned against a gnarled Joshua tree. I'm getting a million scratches on my legs. The view in the morning will be worth the trouble, JK said. I'll be too wasted to enjoy it. Luna kept on climbing, but she grew quiet. The final steep minutes to the top of Clark Mountain were terrifying for her. Their flashlights did nothing to relieve the stony darkness. He hiked on, feeling exhilarated, trying to encourage her. There were few things he enjoyed more than camping overnight on top of the mountain in a sleeping bag with only the sky above. We're sleeping without a tent, Luna said when they got to the top. He nodded. We're here. Let's just enjoy it. We should knock out our shoes before putting them on in the morning, she said, in case there are scorpions inside. Oh yeah, I've heard that. Also that a reptile might crawl over my face at night if I sleep without a tent. But I've never run across anyone who said, the other day I woke up to find a dozen scorpions in my shoes. Or I opened my eyes and there he was, a rattlesnake on my chest. She groaned. I hope you'll call for a helicopter instead of racing me down the mountain in case an animal attacks me at night. After they brushed their teeth using the water in her Aquafina bottle, they lay in their sleeping bags staring at the stars above. I have something for you. Uh-huh. Jakey pulled out the ring from his pocket and showed it to her. It was a silver ring with a pretty turquoise bead. He'd bought it at a campus bazaar. Luna looked at him bewildered. He found it was hard to explain, even to himself, what he was doing. It's a friendship ring, he said, nothing sentimental. I happened to pick it up without even thinking about it. Toss it down the mountain if you like, it's not expensive. If you were going to give it to me, why not at Cafe Santorini? Right now I close my eyes and I see green scorpions and I'm half frightened to death. He looked away and spoke with hesitation. It might have confused you if I gave it to you then. And I'm, a, I'm my most courageous out in the open. She looked at him, touched by how insecure he sounded. Unzipping her sleeping bag, she reached over to him. This is a surprise. The only thing is, are you this crazy all the time? He laughed. I don't think of myself as being crazy. You're easy to talk to, she said, unless so unlike someone else I know. Who? She shrugged. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you later. They smiled sympathetically at each other. She put on the ring and kissed it. Quiero un beso, she said. Come again. She leaned over and kissed him. This was joy, on top of his favorite mountain. The rush of this moment was beyond what he might have anticipated. Surprisingly, he started to feel that everything he wanted was no longer out of his reach.
Knowing that Anne-Marie would not be his companion for life was still a blow. It was Anne-Marie's nature to expect him to divine her needs. Had she punished him because he'd hesitated to get engaged? Would this ring, if he'd remembered to purchase it in time, have changed the course of events? He'd felt his safety net sagging after the breakup. He so wanted to stop feeling like a spider she'd swatted casually with her fancy handbag. Tonight, for the first time since that horrible afternoon in New Brunswick, things felt all right. Reaching across sleeping bags, they kissed each other until they'd exhausted all possibilities from this position. Then he pulled her gently into his sleeping bag. When she didn't resist, he spread out his bag to make enough space for two and pulled her sleeping bag over them as a blanket. Thus situated, they embraced, and for so long that the lingering embrace mingled with the night air and the trees barely swaying above them also became a part of it. Having already broken their promise to not get sentimental, it was impossible now, in the scheme of things, to move backwards. So they moved in the only direction that, lay, that still lay open, toward each other. So this is how you stay warm, Luna teased, her cheek resting momentarily in the curve of his neck. I'm usually here alone, JK said shyly. The tiredness from their hike blanketed them, and he drifted off. Only the embrace remained, and it was the embrace of two children lost in the forest. So please welcome Jim Reagan. Jim Reagan, no Jim, no! <laughs> well, I, must, I must thank you. Is this one? There we go. Uh, I have to thank you, though, Priya. Priya and I have a long history together because uh, when I was the uh, director of the professional writing program at USC and she was studying cinema over at the cinema school, uh, she came over to take uh, a few courses and we talked briefly and I still remember the prose that she showed me and um, and brought her right into the program so this is the fulfillment of that you know that moment of a good decision to to have her come in and, and uh, get her to write uh, fiction um, but uh, and again we've kept in touch all these years I had no idea until this day how much you really knew about birds. <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I've been I've been uh, pronouncing the word heron. Is that how you say? It? I've been saying it heron forever. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how many of us have been saying it. Heron. I think it works. Yeah, it's the British U.S. thing sometimes. Yeah. So heron. Yours is, heron. Yours is correct. Works, so okay. I just learned. <laughs> I, I love learning that. Um, but uh, in, in many of my in many of my own poems, I use bird images. Uh, I've always been fond of uh, of uh, what I can pull out of nature, just as you have here. Uh, but again, your knowledge of this is just remarkable. Tell me, uh, and this is going to be more of a Q and A and getting information out of her. Uh, but tell me again. It seems a huge leap from what you were doing, working on the film, which won you many awards. Uh, uh, you know, your work with Scorsese and then the whole film that you've done. Uh, what was that leap? How did you actually, you, you say you just noticed them and suddenly you went there. But there has to be something much larger, something behind that, that would make you go that deeply into it to where yeah. you're, you're calling yourself a birder. And that's a huge leap. Yeah, um, yeah, so it was a huge leap from working on this documentary with Scorsese and Ravi Shankar and Asma Merchant uh, to uh, the world of birds. But I think I, I also... I wanted to have an atypical experience of LA. I, I had lived here when I was a student, and when I came back from LA, from uh, Santa Cruz, I thought there's got to be more to LA than what I've seen. And I just started going and, and hiking in places and just finding out what kind of wild areas exist in LA. And the more I did this, um, I was definitely running into birds, but I was also running into birders. And, um, you know, I, I started, found myself 
myself on weekends just going out on field trips with birders, you know, to the Antelope Valley, just Bolsa Chica, all kinds of unexpected places. I was definitely not in LA proper. Right. And, um, and then these characters started coming to me and I, um, I found that, as I said in the slideshow, I began to look at birds through their eyes. And then I felt that I, I, really, I really needed to become a serious birder if I, if I was going to write something about this. Mm -hmm. and, and so basically all weekend I'd be out there looking at birds. Well, I know my nephew, apparently, he's been doing this for years and he's a, a professor at Penn State back there. Mm -hmm. He comes to California frequently just for that very reason. Okay. And he's doing listing and he's doing the same thing. And then there was a movie, some of you might have seen it, called The Big Ear. Did you see that one? The Big Ear. Mm. Uh, what's the actor in there again? Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Yeah. yeah. That was the first time I actually knew about all of this. Yeah. That people took this very seriously. They, I mean, they got awards for it, but that they actually went out to discover and yeah. to see birds as my nephew was doing for years. Yeah, and, and I uh, mean, I think that one thing that inspired me to write it, I was, I was seeing people like your nephew do this, mm -hmm. or not your nephew specifically, but I was seeing people doing this, and, um, and I think I found that there were some people who were just so focused on their life lists. Right. And then there was the other kind of person who was thinking about the birds and their habitat. And I, I really wanted to explore, I, I wanted to write a story that involved both of those kinds of people and just really explore, you know, wh why do we make these lists? Like, mm -hmm. does, you know, does everything have to be competitive in this right, country? Right, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're talking about birds. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, well, I was making lists, so I don't want to point any <laughs> fingers, but I, I just wanted to explore this. Right. Hey, and then uh, when you're talking, for example, all the canyons that are here in Los Angeles. So you explored quite a few of those, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I was... So they became the subject, or rather the locations for some of the uh, scenes in your book? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a lot of birding trips in the book, and basically everything that's written about are places that I've spent a lot of time in and that I've seen birds at. So I only wrote about birds that I, you know, personally had experiences with. Right, right. How about the actual, you know, this is, uh, we, we promised that we would talk about um, our own approaches to uh, creativity. In other words, I write poetry, plays, films, a lot of that. Um, but uh, one of the things that most people don't think about when you're, when you're actually working on a book, a play, whatever it is, is the amount of research you do for mm -hmm. it. And this really required a lot of research. But what I was most interested in is that you're out in the wilds. It's one thing to have your binoculars or whatever you want to take your camera or your glass, whatever you're working with, uh, and to be so infatuated with birds. And you said you saw the bobcat in your backyard, but <laughs> what about being out there? You're pretty much in a vulnerable situation. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty exposed. I remember going on a hike uh, in the Chatsworth area in West LA, and there were big signs warning about mountain lions in the area. And, and there was a mountain lion in your book. You yeah, there's a mountain lion attack in, in. in my book. And, uh, you know, th there's also the issue of bears. And I remember doing the same kind of thing in, in Northern California. and and uh, hiking up a mountain and getting pretty close to a glacier and kind of wondering whether I really had the energy to cross because the sun was kind of starting to get low and um, so I was I was in the middle of making that decision do I want to cross that glacier or, or start heading back and just then I saw a, a bear with two cubs I, I heard the scuffling first of all and I looked around saw a bear with two cubs and so I thought okay great that's gonna be a great shot so I pull out my camera and I have the bear in the viewfinder, and all of a sudden, it's not in the viewfinder. So I thought, what happened? And I happened to, you know, just pull the camera down, and the reason it was not at the, in the viewfinder was because it was charging at me. Uh, and so that pretty well made my decision about whether I wanted to cross the glacier or run down the mountain, and I did the latter. <laughs> 
Well, this is something that I wrote on the back of the book when uh, she asked if I would read the book and give a, uh, an attribution. But uh, I, I just simply said, set against the quicksand passions of big ear birding. Again, that was a, a term that I suddenly was aware of just from the film and then suddenly that you were writing the book. Uh, Priyanka Kumar's characters explore the very wilds of nature and the human heart. This is what I really enjoyed about this, is how you were able to somehow marry the two. Mm -hmm. you, everything you were doing in your uh, descriptions of nature somehow were also part of the characters you created. Um, and I say you are the master of the hunt, whether hiking out to the warbling cowbirds or to see a flock of, and I, maybe I'm saying this wrong, phalaropes. Phalaropes, perfect. Very good. Uh, seeing a flock of phalaropes spinning in a pond. We view it all through the spotting scope of your remarkable prose. The poetry, and this is what I'm leading to, the poetry of the landscape and the birds become all one song. And I actually borrowed that from the book. This is actually your quote from a line. Talk about that. Talk about the, uh, the reason I wanted you to read is because of the poetic, the rhythms in your, in your narrative, in your prose. But talk about how you were able to, at one point, I know even with the image, uh, constantly there was wonderful poetic images where you say, uh, those fowler ropes spun around in the waters of one pond like little boats, and the image just came alive for me. But uh, what kind of an influence did you have that poetry became a very big part of describing in this book? I mean, the birds themselves were poetic. Yeah. Well, one of the po poets that I greatly admire is Rabindranath Tagore, and we were talking about him yesterday. Right, right. And um, he is well known for being able to, as they say, see the world in a grain of sand. And uh, what I found is that sometimes when I was on these birding trips, um, you know, birders who were more interested in listing, once they saw the bird, they'd very quickly move on to the next one. Right. And for me, um, the whole point of coming so far, of driving, you know, three, four hours to get here, was kind of to get lost in the charm of, of this specific bird. And, you know, just, um, I think I'm, I'm still struck by how small they are, how different yeah. they are from each other, how vulnerable they are, you know, and, and yet they migrate to such far-flung places. Right. So um, I think that maybe it was, uh, the kind of um, poets that I was exposed to, sometimes through you, I, I remember reading a lot of Rilke when I was, yeah, uh, right, right. Uh, when, you know, we'd have those conversations. And, and I think I, I became lost in the poetry of the birds. And that right. actually saved me because it prevented me from becoming a lister. So just, you know, because it is, it is kind of addictive to become a lister. Right. It kind of gives you a high, you know, oh, great. I was able to squeeze, you know, 20 <laughs> birds out of, you know, this particular canyon. And it just feels so good and 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 I am grateful that I somehow did get lost uh, in the poetry of these birds and and got out of that mode right so uh, did any of your cinematic background also contribute to it anything about that because you know there's something very visual you know yeah. you use camera you had to direct you know what the camera does I mean I've done it uh, and, and you're well, You've got image. Yeah. That well, that you know, also. Cartier-Bresson always talks about the decisive moment. And if you're going to do bird photography, it's, it's really, it's, it's, you do it with your body. And I think that's why I showed the photograph of those mute swans in Bern, Germany, when I was crossing the bridge to go to the Einstein Museum. It's almost like... Um, it's your whole body that's somehow experiencing it. And I saw those birds and, you know, I didn't, like my hand just went like that and I was watching the birds and taking that photograph. And I think there is something of my film background that right, comes right. in there and, and just sees that specific image for what it is and what the presence of the bird does to that image. Right, and that's what I found in the book many times, mm -hmm. as though you were actually cinematically taking photos, you know, through the camera, the mm. lens, you know, was so much part of it. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, there's a very dear friend of mine who just passed away, a very fine poet, Seamus Haney, the Irish poet, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, and it was so nice for you to mention, we read in Moscow for Gorbachev, there was Seamus Haney and Bly and Dylan. Uh, but I'll never forget, uh, after we'd read for 10,000 people in a hockey stadium, he said to me one day, he says, he says, Seamus, he says, now that we've become national monuments, look out for the pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that, and, and, and we were, you know, I mean, this was yeah. part of Prague where I'm, I'm also uh, often. Uh, but I even, 
you know, I've, I've become more aware of birds in my backyard since reading this book. <laughs> and, and the naming of, isn't that amazing? You know, you certainly want to name them. I want to know what they are. And here I'm looking at this, I've seen that bird. I know that bird. Uh, but there was a poem that I know, and I won't read it. I just wanted to say that uh, the idea of saying about yours that uh, the poetry of the landscape and the birds become all one song. Uh, that you wrote, you know, that line. It was so true of the actual narrative in here, the book. Uh, there's an intelligence and a clear and honest heart at the center of your writing. This book is an extra extravagant dessert at the end of a feast. Mm. Uh, but I remember being told that there was this forest in uh, the Aleutian Islands called the Aleutian Forest, and it was one cypress. Mm. I mean, and it was called the Aleutian Forest, one cypress sitting there, and I put a fence around it. And uh, when I heard about this, uh, and I saw a picture of it, there was the one bird oh. sitting. It was an egret. Is that how you say yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Good. And uh, I remember uh, just thinking of that bird constantly, and by the end of the poem, uh, I remembered saying something very similar to what you did. Isn't that funny? I said, how for recreation should the sill skin for its part, wet like peat, surround and play inspired ground, and should a feather fail to fall from the egret's wing, what will give it song? In other words, what will give this one illusion for us, this one cypress, its own song? There was that bird doing it. So it was so nice to hear that line in your own work. Um, so now, uh, again, um, there's so much more we can talk about. And, and I know you wanted to talk about just the idea of the uh, creative process. And uh, I'm interested also because I work in several genres. And you wanted to talk about that a bit, the importance of being able to do that. Well, I mean, only if people are interested in that, but I think what I've been finding is that it is quite an enriching experience to be a multidisciplinarian and to go back and forth between film and fiction has uh, really led me to all kinds of paths that I, I, I wouldn't have gone on before. And I think there was maybe almost a stigma against doing that maybe 20 years ago where you were really supposed to be, you know, your right. film person or right, your TV true. person or, or your book person. But now things have really changed. I mean, what have you found, Jim? Well, I mean, I know that in the University of Iowa, a very fine writing program, but if you go there, you can only do fiction or you can only do poetry. You can't mm. do both. So mm. we did it differently. But it's because I found people like uh, Faulkner who wrote great novels like you just did, and then, but he wrote uh, books of poems, two books mm -hmm. of poetry, and he wrote The Big Sleep for Humphrey Bogart, so he actually mm -hmm. was, and most people wouldn't know that about him. Uh, or even John Paul Sartre, who wrote yeah. great nonfiction, you know, existential treatises, and then uh, wrote the play, you know, wrote his play, and then he wrote screenplays. Mm -hmm. That was a big shock. Yeah. So, uh, but I, as I said, in, in anybody that picks up this book is going to just hear and see the song of the of the writing, mm. the rhythms that I want. That's why I wanted you to read, uh, but also the visuals of the film, mm. filmic that you bring through. You really catching all the, you know, the kind of a marriage of the multi-genres in your own, own your book. So uh, you're to be, you know, congratulated on that because that's hard to do. Thank you. It really is. Um, the other thing I, I would ask you, though, is that you live in a very rich era, area, you know, in Tau, Tau, near Taos and near Santa Fe Santa and all Fe, that. Yeah. And you mentioned that briefly. Yeah. Uh, what about the desert birds? You see, uh, you know, are there is there a kind of... A distinction that you find with the desert birds, that kind of an outdoor bird, as opposed to those that are near the water and whatever. Yeah, certainly, and and desert birds are some of the more fascinating birds. Are that they more colorful ones also? Well, what against happens? The landscape? They're not necessarily more colorful, but cacti can bloom in very colorful ways, and desert birds are often attracted to cacti. Right, look, so at, look at me looking like I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. You know. So, um, so it is it is quite thrilling. I mean, even if you see what you know, it's not necessarily a common bird, but it's not uncommon either. Um, just a thrasher, uh, which I would think of as a desert bird. Um, I think what I've found is that desert birds tend to be um, 
very persistent. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how hard they'll work to get at whatever they're after. And it's amazing to watch um, them bullying other birds, like <laughs> scrub jays, to get out of the way right, right, <laughs> Yeah, right. when they're after something. Right, and how about you? You have a beautiful new daughter. You show me the pictures. <laughs> that bobcat's out in your backyard. I want to know more about you know, how you're feeling with that kind of... You know, I mean, it's really interesting because, yeah, I have a, a two-year-old daughter, and I was pregnant with my daughter when, when I first saw that bob, bobcat, and I was so excited. I was calling everybody and saying, I have a bobcat in my backyard, and it stayed around for half a day. And everybody's response was, aren't you worried? Like, what, what happens when the baby comes? I mean, you can't take her outside right, if right, there's right, a right. bobcat generally running loose. And what I'm finding is that it's, it's, been, it's been quite a pleasure to introduce her to to some of these um, bigger animals. I mean, we regularly get deer, and of course we right. have rabbits outside. And she was there with me when I saw the bobcat. And since then, she's been saying, where's bobcat? Mm. But, you, yeah, right, right. <laughs> but you even said that this bobcat felt like it possessed the place. This is its yeah, place. It came yeah, back, it and was, you felt that. Yeah, it was just, it was just literally like, six feet away. Right, right. I mean, the doors were closed, but we have a lot of glass, so... You know, um, one of the most remarkable experiences, because when people say, how do you write and what do you write about, uh, the idea is to write as you have something original and unique, which is what you've done. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a subject most people won't touch. It's a difficult subject to be able to maintain a, a storyline through it. Uh, but I was in Prague uh, with my classes I take every summer. Uh, I have a regular course I teach, and we were at this restaurant, and we were all sort of looking out at the window when a, a, when a bird, mm. a bird had hit the high tension wire. And I saw it in some of the students, and it hit the, and it just fell right down, right, like that. And a woman immediately ran up. I'd never seen anything like this. A woman immediately ran up, picked it up, cradled it, and began to massage the chest. Wow. And like was opening the beak. We later found out she was actually a doctor, so she was, I think, at the point, just experimenting to see what, what she could do with this wow. bird. Another woman came up. The attention they paid to this bird that most of us would have walked past and said, my God, look at that. The bird mm. just fell and hit the high attention wire. That bird flew away. I mean, she resuscitated wow. it somehow, and that bird flew away. And I looked at my writers in my class, and I says, okay, who's writing that poem? Because <laughs> that's as original as you can get in an experience to, you know, to witness yeah. something, something like that. So were there any experiences with any particular bird that just, for you, was just the most amazing moment? Uh, that you never thought you would see that bird? Because my, my nephew always talks about he's come across, he never thought he would find it, and there it was. It's interesting, actually, your story um, is pretty similar to the story I'm going to tell. Um, you, you just, you, you become so close to these birds. Mm -hmm. And we had a hummingbird that hit one of our windows and just fell down after. And um, I was just so devastated, like, is she hurt? And so uh, Michael went out and, and you know, really, uh, he took some towels and to keep her warm and then we brought some water gave her a sip of water and really nursed this bird for about 40 minutes and she came to right, and right. you know hung around for another hour while she recovered and then she flew away yeah. so but I think moments like that really stay with you so that they're you know they're no longer just you know like this little bullet that hits and it doesn't matter if it goes. I mean, you, you really start right, to right. think of them as these living creatures who yeah. are having um, interesting experiences. And, and I try to plant a lot of hyssops and agastashis. There are these pinkish flowers in our backyard because a lot of hummingbirds come and, and I know they're then going off to Mexico, you know, so they need all the nutrition they can get. So, so I try very hard to do that. Right. I, I grew up as a child, I remember in my neighborhood, and my, uh, my brother-in-law planted all these uh, pines right down the road. And, and ever since then, all the crows just migrate to and these to pines, and they sit in there, and they're very, you know, they're a little bit frightening when you're a child looking out there and saying, my God, what are they doing? And the, the calling and the, the sounds they make when they really go at it. Uh, so, I mean, I grew up with those kinds of birds, and then I realized that uh, when critics would read my work, they would always say, you know, you have hawks a lot, and you're a lot of hawks. Well, I never thought of it that I, that I was even, uh, you know, aware of the fact that I was choosing that 
one bird, but uh, it goes back to an event where I remember seeing a hawk for the first time and thought, what a beautiful bird this hawk was. You know, and, and it's, look, and I just thought it was the most graceful also, like the eagle, but it was the most graceful. So I think just in the back of my mind, I'm always pulling that bird into my, into my own work. Yeah, I mean, I think I've noticed that actually in your work, Jim, and it was, Jim made an interesting comment to me earlier today about how it's important for writers to be sensitive to the things yeah, around yeah, them. Yeah. And I think that if we are sensitive, then we can't help noticing birds. Right. I, 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 what we were talking about, and I think this is for any of you that are creative in your own work, uh, was that I, I would teach my students to, to live poetry, not just write it. They had to live it. They had to understand what that meant, that is to be sensitive to every moment around you. But I, I would say things like, look, when next time you take a shower, know what it is to be shower, being shower for you. Know what that water is like. You know, and these students are looking at me like, this guy's weird. <laughs> yeah. And I'm saying, next drink of wine that you take, that next glass of wine. I mean, let that wine have its moment of being and experience it. Turning on the ignition of the car, the same thing. Uh, and that you'll start understanding what it is that the artist feels every time he, every moment of the existence is one that you truly give to a sensitivity whether you're a poet or a dancer or a composer or uh, a novelist, uh, whatever it is. So it's very important that if you can get a culture to be thinking that way, um, you'll see that it'll start changing. And then we've talked about technology, how yeah. basically that starts to push away at, uh, at nature and uh, you know your ability to somehow bring that to you. Technology is sort of, mm -hmm. you, you use the word becoming addictive to the point where we're right. losing the outdoors. Right. At this point, we can should we open it up to yeah. the audience I want to hear if you have uh, anything? other questions yeah. and other people any comments that you might have? Yeah. Thank you. Um, a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then I was writing the book after that. Not necessarily, but m my boyfriend, who's now my husband, was uh, quite into hiking. And, and so I was already used to going on a lot of hikes. So for me, it made it richer if, if I could. I actually started looking at plants first, and then it led to looking at birds. And, and it just made the whole outdoors come alive for me. Like sometimes I, I didn't, I wasn't sure what the point of an arduous hike was, but once I got more into birds and plants, like it all kind of fell into place. <laughs> I would like to ask you how you combine the technology, the computer, which all in some respect are good information about this reading through email. Uh, a bit late, so that's the reason I'm sorry I'm late. I would love to hear more about this technology and the creative art. Uh, writing, first of all, because it's easy to write on computer. I myself have it kind of a little easy because I'm a painter, so the computer is dead for me. I get wired and feeling unwell when I'm forced, I'm forced to be by computer. But you know, I live the emotion through the Canvas paper, yeah, yeah. Yeah. sensitivity. I, yeah. How you not lose the sensitivity? Yeah. Especially when you write it, you need exactly. to do it. Yeah. Aside of that, learning, yeah. you know, uh, emails, I mean, yeah. Facebook, forget about that, LinkedIn, all that crap. You know, right, right. How you combine well, it to not lose Yeah, I, st I started as a painter. I had a scholarship when I was in high school. I won a prize, and they sent me to Carnegie Tech to study art and painting. And I, I know what you're saying, and I know that. Uh, there was something about waking up with good first light and starting painting and it would be evening and I would forget to eat. That's how much you're into the canvas itself. And I loved when critics first would read my poetry and saying he's taking images from the canvas to the page. Because in a sense that's what I was doing. And I could never buy into the technology that much, although I, you know, I, I, I say it's great for you know, what learning. I, I love to go to Google and get what I need to do, but I would never write on the computer. I have to fill the pencil and the paper, and I work on the yellow pads, and then my wife, Deborah, takes it to the computer, or my daughters do that. Uh, but there's something about participating in the act itself that. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
and the scratching and yeah. the green. Well, I was just I was just in London. Then you should answer too. I was just in London, and I got on a tube, and uh, there was a girl that walked in with paint all over her hair and her coat. She just come from a theatrical event, and so she had to paint. She sat next to me. And I had been watching nine people, I counted them, nine people sitting in this tube, all with their, their like this. Yeah. And then the iPods, which means that basically they're cutting out the whole world. Everybody is out. This is not what I grew up with, you know. So I turned to this girl and I said, look at this. Look at the nine people across from us. Not one of them is going to talk to each other, but there they are. They're just doing this. There's like no communication. Community is lost. And that, she saw it right away, and then she continued, and I just got an email from her uh, saying she was sorry. I had to read at Oxford. She was sorry she couldn't make the Oxford reading. Uh, but that communication continued just because me turning to her and talking to her, and I was proving a point, you know, whereas none of these people would ever know each other. So technology has that uh, horrible ability to somehow, you know, uh, alienate people as well as bring them together. I have a feeling that a lot of people take it as a protection to heart. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Right, right, right. Yeah. And yeah, this is the beautiful beauty of art. The, the beauty of art is that art is intended to pull people in. They they participate in the mm -hmm. art piece. And I mean, I think an artist can do that if they themselves have that kind of focus to, to, you know, give long extended periods of time to writing. And it is very hard when you're connected on the computer to everything to be able to, uh, you know, write a novel. Uh, for this particular one, I actually wrote it on paper um, and then did the editing on, on computer, which is kind of unusual because I'm as computer, as much of a computer person as anybody else. But I felt that this kind of treatment of birds needed me actually writing in a notebook. So I wrote the entire thing in a very giant notebook and then transferred it. Okay, well. That picture of the little girl just standing, that's so beautiful. Go ahead. Uh, any other questions? Anything that, uh, I know you were going to say something right here. You were gonna, you were gonna say something earlier. Oh, no, I thought you guys were awesome. Okay. Oh, okay, but I wanted, well. Anybody else have any uh, any questions? Because it's about the art. That's why I'm glad you asked your question. <laughs> yeah. No, I do have a question because you know I must say as a foreigner, everywhere I'm a foreigner, every country I'm a foreigner. Where I was born, where not, where I was living. Where were you born? I was born in Prague. I'm ah, not po Slovensky taught it. That's my <laughs> first language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. I do know you. Uh, I'm Norwegian and I'm an American and I'm foreign everywhere. I've been traveling so it takes me like uh, uh, one week I'm mixing everything together and then I'm that language, you know. So when I'm writing quite honestly and I find this side of uh, painting which is like something where I'm used to like pull my... I used her painting for a cover, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's like I can't, I'm able to wake up emotions in other people. But the writing, I find it's really incredible because you never know. I mean, I know when I'm not writing. Why do I end up? It's mm. like when I'm writing. But, you know, I'm not a writer. Yeah, so yeah. Well, for me, I do write on computer because, you know, like, you know, research and all that stuff. Yeah. So I would ask you if you're writing, I know not that these words, but otherwise if you're writing in the computer, yeah, and and yeah, I do some of my writing that way. But I think it's always great to print stuff out and see it on the printed page just to get some perspective, because um, you can lose sense of structure and shape inside the computer. It's really easy to get lost. I mean, it's. It's great, you can still get a sense of the rhythms and your language inside the computer, but really to assess the shape or structure, I have to print it out. Well, so. It's just 
No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. you're 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 yeah. correct in your you know your feelings on it. I do know that uh, th there's a danger that we become a post book reading generation, and we are in a bookstore here. That's why it's so important. You know, books still they're tactile, and there's what we call a peripheral vision that you get from reading books. You get a tunnel vision from TV or the computer screen. That's what you take. You're in, but we're losing that peripheral vision that language gives us, and on the page and the imagination that spreads out larger, so. Uh, I think it's a real art talking about end of the world. I think real adventure is that authors only know very few people which read the books, but I know tons of people which will be spending the highway in front of TV, games, Yeah, stuff. video, yeah. And it divides people, the humanity is disappearing. Well, there's a, even in Facebook, I did an interview for New Presence magazine out of Prague where I called it narco-narcissism, you know, the, the adults know how to use Facebook, but the younger kids, like my son, will spend four hours on this, on this uh, Facebook, it's like an addiction, whereas my daughter's all read books in those four hours, he's in there with, uh, with that, and what you've gotten is all the trivialities of their momentary lives, and they also, it's an addiction of the narcissism of that, but also the bullying that goes on, and you read further and you see that they'll describe their sexual activities very graphically on the, on these uh, Facebooks, and then of course they can't wait to go out and smoke some tree as though we don't know what they're talking about. Uh, so there's this kind of lack of communication that comes with the Facebook right now, uh, where they hide in it, you know, you can hide in it, but it's it's a, the bullying part is pretty dangerous, I think. Uh, yeah. No, okay. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> They'd like to get a copy. Right. Well, thank you all for being here. I think you have somebody else coming up soon, huh? Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for all coming. for being here, especially you. Thank you for yeah, being here. For uh, for uh, this is a beautiful book. If you have a chance to get it, please do it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.